Welcome to Documents in Detail, a webinar and podcast series that explores the core documents of American history. Today, we are joined by our host, John Moser of Ashland University, and panelist Stephen F. Knott of the United States War, Naval War College, and Dan Monroe of Milliken University. This is the final episode devoted to an in-depth look at the history of American foreign policy prior to 1899. Did the imperialistic impulses of the late 19th century destroy America's small-r Republican identity, or was it merely a continuation of the manifest destiny ideology that had guided American expansionism since the founding? Join us as we discuss Carl Schurz's resonant 1899 speech against American imperialism. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I'm professor of history and chair of the Master of Arts program in American History and Government at Ashland University. And I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Documents in Detail, Teaching American History's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically important documents. We encourage all of you joining us this evening to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the Q&A box. Please use the Q&A box and not the chat box so that I don't have to monitor both of them. We will try to get to as many of those questions as possible. Within the next week, you will receive an email with links for further reading on tonight's topic, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from our program. The speeches, letters, and other writings that we're using for this year's webinars are all drawn from the various volumes in our core document series. They are also available at the Teaching American History uh, website's extensive, indeed voluminous, document database located at tah.org. The subject of our program tonight comes from the volume on American foreign policy. I have it right here, American foreign policy to 1899, that is, edited by Steve Knott. The document is Against American Imperialism by Carl Schurz, and to help discuss it are Steve Knott himself, recently retired as professor in the Department of Naval of National Security Affairs uh, at the United States Naval War College, as well as Dan Monroe. Uh, he is associate professor of history and chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Milliken University. Both gentlemen are also faculty members in Ashland University's master's program in American history and government, as am I, as a matter of fact. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank, Thank you, you, John. Good to be here. So uh, we, um, first of all, this uh, I find this is a fascinating document. I, I really am, am, am interested in this uh, this this period of history. Uh, this is this is a a, a great debate. One, you know, we, occasionally we have in U.S. history these great debates about the whole course of American foreign policy. What do we stand for as a nation? And and of course we have one of those at the time. Um, could could you tell us a little bit about uh, our protagonist here, uh, Carl Schurz? Uh, sure, John. Um, so Carl Schurz was an immigrant uh, from Prussia. Uh, he had really a fascinating life. He was involved with a revolution in Prussia in the late 1840s. I believe it was directed at toppling King... Wilhelm Frederick IV or something along those lines. <laughs> and um, he paid uh, a pretty serious price for his revolutionary activity. He did, he did some time in prison, a uh, very uncomfortable prison, needless to say, uh, escaped and eventually made his way to the United States where he settled in Wisconsin, uh, where there is and was a substantial German uh, immigrant population. Uh, with the approach of the Civil War in the mid-1850s, uh, of course, Wisconsin is somewhat ground zero for this new up-and-coming Republican Party, and Schurz is very much an active participant in the early stages of the rise of the party and comes to know uh, an Illinois, former Illinois congressman by the name of Abraham Lincoln, and enlists his efforts on behalf of the Lincoln campaign 
1860. After President Lincoln wins the election, he appoints Schurz as his ambassador to Spain. Uh, he's not there all that long, I think not even quite two years, returns home and takes a commission as a Union officer, I believe he's a major general, uh, in the Union forces during the Civil War. Not entirely sure how much action he sees, uh, but he's certainly, you know, a, an important part of both the rise of the Republican Party and the Union war effort. After the success of the Union effort, uh, Schurz ends up in Missouri, where he becomes a United States senator from Missouri during the Grant administration. And this is where he's going to sort of break uh, with the Republican mainstream. He is not a friend uh, he's not an ally of Ulysses S. Grant. They tend to break over two issues. One is Grant wants to acquire Santa Domingo for the United States, and Senator Schurz leads the charge against that acquisition, against that imperialist act, if you will. And um, Schurz is also an opponent of Grant's somewhat forceful enforcement of civil rights laws for the newly freed slaves in the South. Uh, he's later becomes Secretary of the Interior under President Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, where he is responsible for policy towards Native Americans. He has a, depending on which historian you want to believe, he has something of a mixed record at best on that uh, question. He keeps the Bureau of Indian Affairs within the Interior Department and keeps it out of the hands of the War Department, which probably would have made the status or the living conditions of Native Americans even worse. Uh, so on the one hand, he seems to have a desire to keep it from being viewed as, the Native population being viewed as enemies. Uh, but on the other hand, he's also responsible for some forced relocations. To bring him up to date with the period here that we're looking at with this document, he leaves the Senate, he's defeated after one term, he becomes a prominent journalist, uh, including for a magazine, a journal called The Nation. Um, and he leads the charge against American imperialism in the 1880s and in the 1890s. Uh, for instance, he's a strong voice in opposition to the American acquisition of the Hawaiian Islands during the presidency of Benjamin Harrison. And then bringing us up to date with this particular speech from 1899, he is a strong opponent of the Spanish-American War and the, um, the, the sort of consensus, well, I don't know if consensus, that's a little off, but the, the pressure within the Republican Party to acquire territories in the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Cuba, et cetera, sure is as dead set against that as a betrayal of American principles. I'm going to ask Dan to chime in in a moment, but was he an opponent of the war itself? Or only of the uh, the attempt to to profit from it in terms of territories. Um, I uh, maybe you guys could correct me, but I thought he was an opponent of the war itself. Yes. I, 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 yes. I simply don't know. I know that there were many, right. as William yes. Jennings Bryan, who yes. were a, a lot. There were a lot of probably the Democrats were more hawkish than the Republicans in eighteen ninety eight. But uh, yeah, okay, that yeah. that, that thanks. Yeah. Uh, Dan, what would you uh, would, would, would you add to that? Sure, supported Brian. I think over the he did. Yeah, he did. so I think yeah. that you, you're. I think <laughs> sure supports the war too. Um, I think that that was a great summary. I don't know that I could add to it other than to note that Sure's had a remarkable life. Uh, you know, I mean, good lord, he, as Steve pointed out, he started out being thrown in prison. Uh, for opposing the uh, um, the German monarchy and ends up in the United States and the Union Army and and as a leading figure in the Republican Party because he represented this kind of German vote uh, that was strongly anti-slavery that was an important part of the Lincoln's coalition. You know uh, those uh, you know I, I don't think a lot of people realize that, but there were ger German language newspapers in the Midwest who were very strongly supportive of uh, the anti-slavery element, or very strong anti-slavery element of the Republican Party. And Schurz was important to propitiate that, which is why he got his commission. 
I mean, Shears was, you know, not, you know, probably someone who should have been a general officer, but, you know, he yeah. became a general officer because, you know, because Lincoln, you know, as you know, Lincoln had to give out some of these commissions to, to keep his coalition together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe, did I understand you correctly, Steve? You said that he, uh, he was an opponent, Shears was an opponent of Grant on, on Grant's reconstruction policy. Yeah. So that's it. Well, it's an interesting point, John. So, you know, I think Dan is not right to point out that initially Shores seems to be, you know, on, on the, the forefront of the Repub- the early Republican Party in the notion of uh, certainly halting the expansion of slavery. I'm not sure, but I would classify as time goes on, and I don't have a good handle on this, I have to confess, during the Grant administration, he does become an opponent of what he sees as a heavy-handed federal enforcement of various civil rights measures, not only the amendments, but the Civil Rights Act of 1870, I believe, um, and the creation of the Department of Justice, but who's, one of whose main responsibility is to enforce the equal protection of the laws for the newly freed slaves. He is not at all comfortable with this. Again, I wish I had a better handle on what it is that leads him to at least some alterations of his position. You know, the 1840s and 50s shores seems to be a little bit different than the 1870s shores when it comes to the rights of African-Americans. Yeah, I think that's right. I uh, I would just add that this was not a, this was not unusual. I mean, there were yeah. a number of Republicans who were had been strongly anti-slavery. <laughs> But felt were not comfortable with the federal government and essentially governing the South to support blacks, uh, political and civil rights. And, and, you know, the sad reality is, uh, you know, why, why did the uh, civil rights, uh, effort in the 19th century fizzle out? Because Northern whites, uh, weren't comfortable with it. I mean, really the army had to stay in, in and I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but the, the truth is the army had, had to stay in the South for 50 years. Uh, you know, in order for the civil rights to kind of, uh, for, for, for black Americans to be saved and, and people in the North weren't, weren't prepared, at least not a majority were prepared for that commitment. And sure. So Schurz was one of many who, who made that migration to that view. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, I, right. We shouldn't probably shouldn't spend a whole lot of time on this. <laughs> it's not our major area of interest. I, I recently we'll be read- back next week to talk about reconstruction. So do it. <laughs> do it. Richard White's book, uh, The Republic for Which It Stands, part of the Oxford yeah. History. He, he talks about this this phenomenon to a certain extent. And they, they he and other liberal Republicans uh, become highly anti-majoritarian and and and, and very and, and very elitist. So so he, he White even suggests that they start to sympathize with the old, with what had been the old slaveholding class, because, well, they were kind of, they were educated and, 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 yeah. and regarded as natural leaders, but yeah. uh, let's, um, let's talk about the, 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 the setting for this, for this speech, America in the 1890s. Uh, obviously there's just, there's just been a war. What kind of background can you give us for this, uh, for this speech? Well, I think one of the important things to mention is that the United States becomes the world's largest economy, according to most economic historians, sometime around 1892, 93, 94, somewhere in there, uh, we exceed the, the GNP of, of Great Britain at that point. We are the world's economic power. And there's a kind of uh, uh, complementary thinking that goes along with that. And Schurz touches on this in the speech we read for tonight, uh, where if we're going to maintain our position as the world's number one economic power, we have to make sure that we have markets abroad that are open to us. Therefore, that requires military expenditures, requires a navy, and perhaps even the acquisition of foreign territories. I think that's one important place to start. Um, the other, the other factor, of course, is that I've always seen the late 19th century American imperialism as a continuation of the fulfillment of the doctrine of manifest destiny. Uh, that now that we've reached the Pacific Ocean, why, why stop there? 
Uh, there's really nobody in our way to prevent us from acquiring places like Hawaii or American Samoa or the Philippines. And there is a strategic argument to be made for acquiring places like that. So um, I would say that's sort of the larger and large numbers of Republicans of Scherz's party and, and some Democrats, as you mentioned, John, have, have bought into this, this notion that, um, you know, manifest destiny is in a sense is alive and well. And you throw into that mix a growing progressive belief that we have a duty, a kind of almost Christian obligation to uplift uh, some of these more downtrodden folks around the globe, <clears throat> excuse me, who don't share our standard of living and our system of government with its rule of law. Dan? Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, uh, very good. And um, I would just say two things. One is, uh, I w- I, uh, when I started to uh, lecture about this period and did some research, I was so struck uh, by the um, um, the intense focus in American uh, newspapers uh, on the on British uh, colonial adventures, you know, for example, uh, Gordon uh, managing to get himself killed in Khartoum, <laughs> and uh, Richard Burton's uh, you know uh, Arabian Nights, uh, things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's an almost breathless quality to the coverage of that in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, and I think Steve's right. There's a, there's a certain continuity here about this American sense of manifest destiny. And also, uh, uh, going along with that, there's a culture that instead of being repelled by British colonialism, looks upon it as, gee, this is exciting and new. And we should, because now we're this economic colossus and we fought this great civil war to end slavery. We should join in this too, because we can bring that kind of moral um, you know, uh, redemption, uh, to the world. And of course, this is, this is, this can be problematic as we all know. And it's, it's, the only, the other thing I would say is, and I'll shut up is, uh, it's interesting how Schurz ticks off in his speech. He addresses each of these pro imperialist arguments, you know, the, the religious argument, the kind of Teddy Roosevelt argument. I mean, each, each one of them, Schurz makes a point of saying, well, here's why this is wrong. Uh, you know, he, he, it's, it's a very good speech. I mean, he's, he, you know, and, and yeah. so you see these kind of cultural and intellectual points, him kind of ticking them off as he goes along. John, if I could just, just add to something Dan said, you know, he mentioned this, this fascination in the American press with, with Britain and with the British Empire. Today happens to be the anniversary of the American toppling of the Hawaiian monarchy <laughs> during the Benjamin Harrison administration. But in the buildup to that American intervention uh, on behalf of people like Sanford Dole and others of the Dole pineapple fame, um, <laughs> were endless newspaper reports about the possibility of the Brits and maybe even the Russians acquiring that beautiful base at a place called Pearl Harbor. And so in the early 1890s, many Americans are thinking, looking westward and thinking of the threat presented to us by the old world powers in the Pacific arena. And Hawaii becomes in some ways uh, the first test case of how serious we are about countering that threat, which, by the way, seems to have been mostly a media creation. Yeah, when I was in graduate school, uh Dan, of course, will remember my advisor, Paul Schrader. Uh, I learned, a, I learned a, a, a term in one of his classes called, a German term called Torschlusspanik, uh, the, the fear that the door was closing and we have to get ours before, before the world gets divided up. That was very strong in Germany at this time, but you, you, you pretty clearly see it in the United States as well. If we're going to jump in on this, we have to do it now or, everyone, or, or, or the other powers are going to grab all the good stuff. Right. One, one other one other thing I wanted to throw in too, as long as we're talking culture, is the uh, you know Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis, and I, I do think there's an element of, well, we've you know we we've we've conquered North America, now let's go abroad, 
And Theodore Roosevelt is a big exponent of this, of course. I mean, yeah. uh, there's that magnificent speech that Roosevelt gives in Chicago in 1898 titled The Strenuous Life. <laughs> what, you know, what could be more revealing? You know, in other words, we, we have to strive. We've got to live this life to the, to the fullest. And we need to take our place on the international stage. It was very heady stuff. It was in Chicago yeah. to, uh, you know, one of the main businessmen's clubs in the period. And I've often, you know, I do a fair amount on Hemingway. I've often thought that Hemingway was strongly influenced by that whole, you know, this is what he he lived and breathed in Oak Park, um, you know, as a boy and then as a young man. And he spent most of his life abroad, uh, you know, so but but it's so that all of that is kind of filtering through yeah. the culture. That's that kind yeah. of pro pro imperialism, cultural mindset. There's kind of a, a crisis of masculinity going on at this time. It's like our parents' generation fought in the Civil War. What are we doing? The middle oh, class right. is we're not taming the frontier anymore. We're working in offices. Uh, we uh, Maybe we're, as Teddy Roosevelt, the term Teddy Roosevelt, like Molly Coddles. That, that <laughs> don't know what it's like really to, to go out there and be tough. So that, that there's this there's this need to assert our manhood by going out there and acting like uh, other manly men in 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 taming the uh, taming the the uh, or bringing the benighted peoples to Christ and, and showing them civilization. That's uh, absolutely true, John. Absolutely true. And of course, in concert with that, they never would have used this term at the time. But all the folks we've already mentioned are believers in American exceptionalism. And we did have this sort of divinely inspired role to bring the, the gospel of self-government, of Republican government and capitalism uh, to, the rest, to the rest of the globe. Yeah. But in a sense, though, you see the argument among the imperialists. Of course, we're talking an awful lot about the imperialists when, when a real subject right. is. Right. Sure. But, <laughs> but in a way, you see among the imperialists almost a repudiation in some ways of it because – Really, I mean, if you want to find yeah. it, if you want to really find the uh, the exceptionalism, it's in the anti-imperialists who yeah. said we don't do this because that's not who we are. Meanwhile, you've got uh, 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 Albert Beveridge saying we should join the ranks of the progressive nations and, and you know, take up our, you know, take our place among them in carrying out this uh, carrying out this mission. That's uh, so an ex- excellent point, John, that, that you know, you see this in Scherz's remarks here. I mean, he's the one who cites the farewell address. He's the one who mentions the founders. He's the one who mentions the declaration constantly. Um, yeah, I think he would have said, no, we are, in fact, we are the defenders of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism says you, you set an example for the rest of the world, for sure, but you don't set it through the point of a bayonet. Uh, and you don't portray, betray your own founding principles uh, in order to, to, to spread them abroad. Uh, that that we, we are the true believers in true Americanism. Yeah, I would just add to that. There's a, you know, and you've both alluded to it. There's a strong religious <clears throat> element here. Uh, you know, it was a very in, intense missionary spirit at this time, particularly in China. Uh, you know, Hemingway's grand, uh, uh, one of his relatives, uh, I was going to say his grandparents, but it was his grandparents, um, but, uh, his uncle or someone was a missionary in China. That was not unusual. Uh, so part, part of the imperial impetus, but, it, but there's a, an element of Christianity and the anti-imperialist, uh, uh, you know, argument as well was, well, we need to go forth and help civilize and Christianize the world. And um, and so both sides tried to claim that moniker, but it's it's float. You know, we give Josiah Strong and others. I mean, it's floating around all through these these uh, arguments. Uh, and I found uh, the only other thing I would say is I found uh, I think your allusion to Theodore Roosevelt and masculinity is very is is amusing because um, it's so true. I mean, Roosevelt directly says. We're a na- we don't want to become a nation of obese shopkeepers. We have to, you know, get into the war. We need to, you know, there's nothing like a war to get you, you fit. Yeah. Uh, and so let's do it. And it just has to be said, he, he not only, he, he walks the walk. He talks the talk, but then walks yeah. the walk. You know, I mean, literally, you know, uh, leads his regiment up a hill. So, uh, in the Spanish American, we're under fire. 
And of course, he's always, Teddy Roosevelt is always embarrassed by the fact that his father bought a substitute during the Civil War. <laughs> yeah, and right. he sure as hell wasn't going to follow that model. Um, so yeah, John's uh, masculinity thesis is one that I think deserves further exploration. Well, it just... It's not original to me. I, 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 yeah. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. It just has to be said, too, that, uh, you know, Hemingway, uh, of course, Hemingway masculinity is a big theme in Hemingway studies. Hemingway would say, uh, tell his sons, being a man is a hard thing. It's hard to be a man. Uh, and, you know, in other words, he was constantly emphasizing that there was certain obligations that came with manhood and masculinity. Well, to me, I've and I've written this, uh, it all, it all comes back to Theodore Roosevelt in this whole period and, and the debate over, uh, you know, what kind of a role the United States should play in the world. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've, uh, we've got a few questions from, uh, from viewers, listeners. Uh, Richard Rago asks, why Santo Domingo? Did it have a strategic or economic value for the United States? Yeah. Grant, President Grant certainly thought that it did. Um, and, um, this was one of the ugliest battles, probably in terms of foreign policy, the most divisive battle of Grant's two terms in office. Uh, but he did firmly believe, uh, that it had a strategic value for the United States, certainly in the Caribbean, but even beyond in the Atlantic. We were again emerging as a world power. Our economy, even during the Grant years, was chugging ahead at full speed. And a place, a, a port, a beautiful port, such as Santa Domingo, uh, would be a, a plus for the United States in terms of protecting our trade routes in the Atlantic and in the Caribbean. And back to what we said before, there was always this perception, if we don't do it, the Brits will. And we have to beat the British to the punch. Now, again, for people like Shores and opponents in the Democratic Party as well, uh, one reason you don't want to take a place like Santa Domingo, and we haven't touched on this yet, really, is because of racial differences. If you take a place like that, you're going to be presiding over a people who aren't up, and this is them, not me, aren't up to the standards of Anglo-Saxon um, culture. And that's going to just drain the United States. It's going to require an occupying force because these these people can't govern themselves. Um, and ultimately, and this is Shears gets into this even later in the speech we read for tonight, it's going to alter the character of the American people as well in terms of having to act as occupiers, but perhaps even somehow importing certain non-Anglo-Saxon cultural elements that are going to sap our precious bodily fluids, as Buck Turchison might say. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> I, I, but that was that was uh, that was Jack D. Ripper, though. A uh, Jack D. Ripper. Sorry, thank you, Joe. Of course, you would know that. Yeah. <laughs> you that I'm sorry, I lost you. you care to add to? Uh, add to yeah, I, I. You know, you, you, we're in a, a period of uh, social Darwinism, and it uh, permeates everything, and. Um, so the you know the and it, it just has to be said that the uh, the race problem in the South has been resolved in a way that is essentially white supremacist, and so you have that floating around as well, and so you, the, all that coalesces into this uh, argument that um, or contributes to the argument that Steve just outlined about um, you know the the undesirability of certain races. Yeah, so that, I mean, this is one thing. This is one thing that both sides of this debate have in common. Yes. The question, so you've got you, you've got uh, uh, social Darwinism, the Anglo-Saxon race, and I suppose Shorts might add the, the Teutonic, <laughs> add the Teutonic right. race to that too. Right. They are uh, they are clearly superior. The question is, what does that imply for American foreign policy? The uh, the imperialist side says. That means we have a, a responsibility to go out there and, 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 and govern others and maybe raise them up. The other says, well, we don't want to be contaminated by that, by that kind of thing. John, notice the similarities here for those in the audience who were with us when we talked about Henry Clay's market speech. Clay had the same concerns about the impact 
on the American political culture of occupying a territory of people who were not like us, who are of a different religion, different skin color, uh, enti- entirely different culture, that that was somehow going to warp uh, American mores. Uh, and it would also require an enormous occupation force that would drain our treasury and the soldiers who would have to do the occupation duty would be contaminated in a sense. Both Henry Clay and Carl Schurz are on the same page, even though we're talking 50 or so years apart. Yeah, that's an important point that, that Steve has just made. I mean, it's, and I think it's quite interesting that both Schurz and, and, and Clay talk mm-hmm. about the danger to American republicanism. But, you know, if you become an imperial power, uh, you're going to subvert the republic. It's not going to, we're not going to be, uh, what we're, we were intended to be. I mean, it's, it, 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 they're, they're speaking in the language of classical republicanism with a small r. You know, classical republicanism warned that, you know, if you get, engage in military despot, in military adventurism, you get a military despotism, you know, like the Romans. So you don't, you know, you always want to have a small military establishment. You don't go out searching for beasts to slay. You're the anti-colonial power. So, you know, this is, it's very interesting how that argument comes all the way forward. And here you have Schertz saying this at the end of the 19th century. It was very commonly bandied about in the antebellum period and before. Yeah. And by the way, notice that Schurz, one of the, he, he raises the specter of a sort of an American Napoleon Bonaparte uh, <laughs> yeah. coming to the fore, you know, presiding, having to preside over this, this enormous empire with an iron fist. Um, and, and look, you know, some of um, some of Schurz's arguments are going to be echoed throughout the 20th century. Uh, in some cases on the American right, uh, during the Vietnam era, on the American left. Uh, and to this day, you hear it, I think, both from folks on the left and also from libertarians about the distorting effect of American empire on the American political culture. And this line from from Shuras could have easily been uttered by, you know, George McGovern in 1972. Let me just quickly read it. Uh, Shuras observed that the United States, quote, cannot long play the king over subject populations without creating within itself ways of thinking and habits of actions most dangerous to its own vitality. Um, anyway, just want to presidency. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We we got uh, uh, some some great questions here. Uh, <laughs> Shayla Nelson asks: During this time period, about what percentage of Americans would have would have opposed American imperialism? Is that something we can answer? I I mean, public opinion polling. If it, I don't even think it was occurring then. If it was, it would have been totally inaccurate. It was completely inaccurate in the nineteen thirties. Never mind the 1890s. I mean, in 1932, they predicted landing over FDR in a landslide. Uh, I wish I could. I mean, maybe Dan has some sense. Look, there was serious congressional opposition to Harry, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt's imperialism. Serious opposition. Substantial numbers. I just I can't, however, get any more specific than that. And when it comes to American public opinion, I'm even less certain. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I would just add that I I think it's analogous to the Mexican War in that uh, the Mexican War was had strong popular support, uh, but there was also strong dissent uh, and significant dissent. Uh, But there's no way to measure because there's no Gallup data until what 1939, 1936, something like that. Whenever Gallup, Uh, but but. To me, it's almost direct. I, I mean, there's a real strong popular current at the end of the 1890s uh, in favor of, uh, or that's that feels that this is, uh, you know, oh, this is a, this is wonderful. We're we're asserting ourselves on the na- on the national stage or the international stage, and that's rightly so. Yeah, I, I, one, I would, go ahead. Sorry, John. One one place to look would be uh, the vote in Congress after uh, McKinley's war message. And I know there was substantial opposition, but that would at least give you some sense of the congressional opposition. And of course, these people are hearing it 
from their constituents. I just don't have that vote in front of me at the moment. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of members of Congress would have cited the amount of mail, the, the percentage of mail they got on one side versus another. Yeah, but I, yeah no. exactly. Good. And, rem- and remember, too, that uh, part of the imperialist argument was that uh, we're we're doing this for the the uh, the other these people's own good. You know, we're we're saving the Cubans from a rapacious uh, Spanish regime, and and we're and the same thing with the Filipinos. So there's an element of I mean, there are people who would support this who would otherwise might might not be inclined yeah. to embrace imperialism because it seems like an altruistic thing. You know, I always think of President McKinley saying, "Well, I got down on my knees and prayed." about what to do about this. And I decided yeah. we need to do this because we need to help <laughs> these people. Uh, you know, and I think, so I think there's a, there's a real missionary element here that made, made imperialism palatable to lots of people. And then, of course, when the USS Maine is, is you know, the whole explosion in Havana Harbor, that gives McKinley some defensive cover in a sense. Uh, now we all know it's not at all clear what caused the explosion in the main, but American presidents historically will always look for an incident, whether it's the Gulf of Tonkin, whether it's James K. Polk, you know, and the, the, the abuse, the attack on Taylor's army or the, or the attack on the main to say, look, we've been attacked uh, as a commander in chief. I'm asking you and Congress to give me the authorities to take the uh, force of the United States against the enemy. Uh, that's that's a consistent thread throughout American foreign policy. This notion of defensive wars, and I, I suppose the, the the result of the 1900 election, in which Bryan was soundly yeah. defeated by yeah. McKinley. There you go. Yeah. Good point, John. Yeah. yeah, that would be that would be that's a great. Yeah, it is a great point because there there you have. A, <laughs> I mean, if you were if you if there was a huge opposition to the war, that would be one way to to express it by yeah. voting in uh, Bryan. Yeah. Uh, Richard Rago asks, is our quest for imperialism uh, following? So to what extent is Mahan's influence of sea power upon history uh, part of uh, part of the argument here? Uh, The need to acquire sea lane and and coal refueling stations. Yeah, excellent question. uh, Excellent observation. I should have brought it up. I just retired from the Naval War College where (laughs) Alfred Thayer Mahan was the dean at one point. Or the president, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, he's something of a god down there still. Uh, absolutely true. And, of course, Mahan had a considerable influence on a number of progressives, uh, including Beveridge, including Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt actually visited the Naval War College at the time when Mahan was there. So, yes, uh, Mahan is a key strategic thinker for American imperialism. Uh, it, there may have been instances where some of these American fig, uh, political figures distorted Mahan's arguments for their own political agenda. Uh, but nonetheless, that that's the school of thought that he's associated with. And I would say for the most part, accurately so. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, the I think the American military, naval, diplomatic elite, uh, were uh, very, very interested in acquiring coaling stations for the Navy. And so they bought into uh, Mahan's argument. Um, and, you know, you know, Mahan was right. I mean, in the sense that, uh, well, if your cruiser is out in the Pacific and runs out of coal, it's just going to, you know, be floating up, you know, up and down. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a real problem that had to be addressed. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, quick point. Uh, one of the uh, sm- somewhat small bureaucratic entities that benefits from the Spanish-American War and benefits from this era of American imperialism is the Office of Naval Intelligence. It was uh, the first bureau- bureaucratic entity ever created by the United States government with a specific focus on intelligence. And it was created in the 1880s. But it's during the late 1890s and in the early 20th century that ONI just sort of takes off and it becomes sort of the eyes and ears for the United States government around the world, both during the Spanish-American War and then even more so uh, during the First World War, where there are ONI operatives all over the globe feeding information back to Washington, D.C.,
That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Uh, my friend Jake Peterson. Hi, Jake. He asks if if Grant was against the Mexican War, but in favor of purchasing the Dominican Republic or Santo Domingo, so that plus eighty, would he have been? Do you think had he survived into the eighteen nineties, he would have been a supporter of uh, imperialism? Oof. Remember, you can't be wrong. <laughs> Good point. <That's> right. <laughs> Well, Santo Domingo was going to be acquired without any, I mean, it would, it seemed as if there would be no, there would be no armed resistance to the extent that that was a factor in Grant's uh, desire to acquire it. I I think it was a factor. Uh, You know, Dan probably knows more, hell of a lot more about Grant than I do. I would assume some of his opposition to the war with Mexico was that he understood that this was a war that would benefit the slaveholding powers in the South who desired to expand slavery even further. Uh, but that's about as far as I can take that question. Yeah, I would just add that um, I, I I don't know that Grant would have supported. Uh, I mean, I think, I guess what I would say is Grant probably would have asked if Grant was still around in the 1890s, Grant would have asked hard questions. Uh, would be the best way of putting it. I don't know that he would have been, uh, I think, uh, given what we know about Grant's attitude towards the Mexican War, he would have been someone who would not have been, um, you know, simply leapt into the imperialist uh, argument or advanced imperialist argument. I think he would have said, well, you know, is this really morally right? It, it, it is interesting to know one of the leading opponents and one of Scherz's main allies during this Spanish-American War era was Mark Twain, who, of course, was quite close to President Grant and funds the the, the whole memoir writing, uh, Grant's memoirs and getting them published. Um, yeah, that's, that just came to mind that Twain was one of the founders, along with Schurz, of this, uh, what was it, the Anti-Imperialist League. Mm-hmm. Um, so a great question. Um uh, Sorry, I, I couldn't be more specific. Dan was a little more helpful than I was on that. Well, you make a good point about Twain. Uh, you know, Twain and uh, Grant were very close. Yeah. And uh, and uh, as you point out, Twain helps get Grant's memoirs out. So it's re- it's reasonable to, to make yeah. that point and suggest that maybe that Grant would have shared Twain's anti-imperialism. Yeah. yeah. Cooper asks... What did different cohorts of contemporary Americans feel about uh, early U.S. imperialist adventures in the Pacific and Caribbean in the early 1900s? The early 1900s. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not well, sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, certainly, look, one of the key insurers is already on to this, that the Philippines – is going to be um, uh, the the Achilles heels of uh, Achilles heel of American imperialism, and he was absolutely dead on about that. This country, our country, is going to engage in one of the bloodiest, ugliest, protracted guerrilla wars in its history that doesn't get the attention to this day that it deserves. But we're going to be fighting in the Philippines well into the First World War. In fact, I believe General Pershing is there in the Philippines prior to being sent overseas to Europe. And that is that that guerrilla war, that counterinsurgency effort in the Philippines is 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 a disaster. And it leads to horrific. what today we would call war crimes on the part of various American units operating in the Philippines. And this is precisely what Schurz is warning about that it's going to change the character of those soldiers who have to fight this imperialist war. And somehow that is going to seep back into the American bloodstream. And I think he was absolutely dead on. Uh, So the the questioner uh, perhaps is on to this, the Philippines becoming a symbol of the real, real ugly side of American imperialism in the early 20th century. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I would just add that the uh, tremendous 
Filipino casualties, uh, by all estimates, you know, into the six figures, rather startling in total. Um, and the uh, I think I read once where the water waterboarding was actually uh, pioneered in the Philippine campaign. But I, 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 I well. yeah, I, I wondered if the the uh, question is uh, <laughs> the questioner is alluding to is like filibustering expeditions. Uh, in the antebellum period, which were not popular in the United States uh, and were a, more of an expression of this uh, Southern desire to acquire additional territory uh, for the purpose of expanding slavery. But the filibustering ep- expeditions did not get good uh, press, were not, uh, except maybe in some extreme newspapers like Charleston Mercury in the South. So if he, if he's alluding to that, uh, contemporaries were not, uh, those are very... Um, uh, generally very unpopular yeah. Yeah. and and uh, you know typically went awry uh with everyone imprisoned or killed in nicaragua uh, led by this guy walker i think yeah we walker yeah yeah that was it would make for a good mel brooks movie <laughs> it was a big fiasco yeah yeah uh, <laughs> since, since dustin baker asks since Shorts was a, a part of the Lincoln administration at about the time of the eventual acquisition of Alaska, would he have viewed this as, as, as an act of imperialism or something that defined American foreign policy goals in a different way compared to the 1890s? That's a another, another terrific question. I believe he's elected to the Senate in 1867 or so. 67, 68, um, and Seward's Folly was right around that time. I just, a terrific question. I just don't know what his position was on the Alaska acquisition. He may, he may, to speculate, have been less troubled by it uh, in that it was almost contiguous uh, with the continental United States. He does reference the fact that we lack that geographic physical link to Puerto Rico, to the Philippines, to Cuba, et cetera. We almost have it with Alaska. And it's for the most part, or at least from our, from the American perspective, uninhabited and probably not going to require a massive military presence that may have put him somewhat at ease. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think Schur's, I, I don't know what Schur's position was on Alaska, but for the reasons that Steve outlined, I think he would regard it as much more benign. Yeah, uh, what he says on 163, compare now with our old acquisitions as to all these important points, those at, at present in view. They are not continental, not contiguous to our present domain. <clears throat> they are all situated in the tropics, which Alaska is absolutely not. That's right. Uh, and yeah. uh, although you, although just because it wasn't in the tropics doesn't mean that it was inhabited by Anglo-Saxons. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, they are more or less densely populated, uh, and they their populations consist almost exclusively of races to whom the tropical climate is congenial. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, he he is very he is absolutely convinced that a tropical climate produces a certain lassitude in the folks who live there. Now, John, you just came back from Florida. Maybe you're feeling a little lassitude. (laughs) (laughs) The stories of Florida, man. (laughs) But he really did. I mean, look, I mean, uh, Montesquieu in the 18th century devotes chapter after chapter in the spirit of the laws about the impact of climate. On the on various political cultures, so I mean, he's go ahead, John. This makes me want to know more about the prevailing attitude toward uh, the Inuits and you know and, and yeah. the other peoples there. Can't yeah, say a great question. Culture. Yeah. I don't really. Yeah, this is something I really don't know anything about, but would like to know, to uh, know more about. Uh, okay, uh, Adam Cooper asks. To what extent were U.S. activities in the Pacific about enhancing our, our military, economic, et cetera, presence in China? Yeah. That, that, that is a factor. Uh, and Schurz mentions that. Uh, he dismisses its importance 
he argues that we would still be able to trade with this, with China, uh, without having these military outposts thousands of miles from the United States. Uh, but that, that was, in terms of the imperialist argument, uh, that was definitely a factor. The Western powers have see this new, enormous market, and they all want to go in and take advantage of it, and we're part of that. No question about it. It's, There's it's, a, go, ahead. go ahead. No. Uh, it's, impre- it's, 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 it's amazing to me how often the China market comes up in, in, in American discourse. It, it, like from the, from the middle of the 19th century, if not earlier, through much of the 20th century, the, the idea that there are, you know, two billion armpits in search of American deodorant and, and the, 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 we have an unlimited, there's unlimited potential there. Yes, it's, it's, it's cigarettes. Yeah, uh, deodorant, John. China still, uh, you know, um, uh, enjoys smoking. Uh, so it's, uh, when I, I was in China some years ago and, um, I found it refreshing that there was so much smoking going on, <laughs> you know, big billboards too, with, you know, uh, advertising American oh, cigarettes well, and American was, cigarette companies love China. Yeah, it's no, great. they do. And, uh, yeah, it was one of the great ways to get, you know, to have a conversation with a, a Chinese national was to off, you know, fish out a cigarette and, uh, you know, the, and invariably would take it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would just note that it's in this period that the, the so-called China lobby uh, emerges because very strong factor in American foreign policy calculations. You know, we're in, in this sense, you get the sense from Hayes open door notes, you know, we're we're the protector of China. These European powers, they just want to economically exploit it. But we're sending missionaries. Yeah, exactly. And and and, you know, of course, we want our share of the pie, too. But we're doing it in an altruistic way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're running out of time, but Gloria Sesso, I think, asked a, asked a, a question that we might, we might end on. Uh, although I've got something else, too, to ask. Do you, <laughs> do you think, did, did imperialism destroy American republicanism? Right? Was this, did this mark the, the loss, so to speak, uh, and, and these, are, these are her words, of our, of our virginity as a nation? Well, uh, very, very tough question. I used to have uh, what I thought was a very certain take on this question. My argument always was that America's role in the world did not uh, lead us to sacrifice our principles, did not lead to some grand alteration in the American character, I have to say, the older I've gotten, the less certain I am of that. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a terrific question. Uh, I personally would put more of the emphasis in terms of if there has been an alteration in terms of the, of the American uh, political culture, that it was domestic policies. It was the impact of progressives, many of these same folks we talked about tonight, TR, for instance. Um, altering the domestic political scene for me- for reasons unrelated to our role in the world. Uh, that may sound like a bit of a cop-out, but I think that's sort of still where I am. But I have to admit, the older I've gotten, uh, the less certain I am that the role that we played in the 20th century um, it was a net positive and that it did not impact us at home. I'm less certain of that. Yeah. Uh, that's a great answer. And I, I would just, uh, my take on it would be that, um, you know, Steve's answered the question of whether or not, or offered a question about whether the American Republic was, was altered. I would just throw in that the concerns uh, of classical republicanism or of American republicanism with a small r persist to this day. You know, we're still, you know, we're still, in other words, the political debate is still very much animated, especially about internationalism, our role in the world, the size of the military, by these fundamental principles of classical republicanism. You know, how, how large should the military be? How involved should we be in this crisis in Europe and in this crisis in Asia? So I do think that there's um, 
Uh, I mean, it's a great question uh, that Steve has addressed about how it's altered um, the country. But I think ideologically, we're still, uh, I think, uh, very much um, in, influenced by the uh, classical Republican tradition. So that persists. I don't think that's changed. Well, I always like to end these with, uh, with a final question. We've got an, an audience that is made up <clears throat> primarily, if not entirely, uh, of teachers. Give us your best pitch for why this document deserves a place in their American history curriculum. I think it's a classic statement of uh, America's ambiguity in terms of its role vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Uh, to, to, to present that even stronger, it's a classic statement in defense of what Dan had just mentioned in a way, a persistent theme for 230 years of American history. To what extent should we be engaged with the world? Uh, most folks think we should be engaged, but, you know, is it just trade or is it more than trade? What Schurz is saying here is that there is a cost to playing the role of what we would today say the world's policeman. And um, if your students are curious and if they want to know about America as a superpower and the pros and cons of America as a superpower, I think Scherz's speech is as applicable today in 2023 as it was in 1899. And for that reason, I think teachers, all of us, should pay attention to it. Yeah, that's very good. I, I would just add that uh, it's a pithy, pithy, relatively pithy um, excerpt, but he he hits all of the major imperialist arguments, <laughs> and he does yeah. it in, a, in, a, in with with great force, but also with brevity. So the advantage of using it in the classroom is that you know you can talk. You you see Schur's addressing Josiah Strong. You see Schur's addressing. The question of uh, the end of the frontier. You see him addressing Theodore Roosevelt's, oh, we need to go out into the world. You know, uh, you know, he says, uh, for example, he says, we're, uh, uh, we're, we're admonished it's time for us to become a world power. And sure says, we're already a world power. <laughs> you know, it's very pithy, but, uh, but it has great force. So the, it, you know, what, what better to use in the classroom when you have people with, you know, uh, limited attention spans and <laughs> you want to have the most impact in the, in the shortest possible way. John, can I just quickly add this debate is very much with us now, right? I would say large elements of the Trump movement, uh, share many of these beliefs of, of Carl Schurz. Uh, of the United States being overextended. The United States should not be as involved as, as it is in the rest of the world. But it's not just the Trump movement. There are a lot of voices on the left as well who are, are making this argument that we are overextended. We're paying a price. The, the defense budget for the United States of America in the coming year, over $800 billion just for defense. And you got folks on the left saying that's insane. You've got some MAGA folks saying that's insane. Many of the arguments that you see in the Shura speech are relevant to today's debates. Very good. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I want to thank both of our panelists, Steve and Dan, for their, uh, for their participation tonight. Uh, I also want to thank our participants for the, the great questions they offered. Uh, as a reminder, you're going to be receiving an email within the next week, and that email will include a link for further readings. It will also include a link to the archive webinar. We hope that you will share that with your colleagues and get it out there on social media as well. If you've enjoyed tonight's webinar, I hope you'll consider taking uh, one of our graduate courses in our MAG program, either online or on campus at Ashland University in the summer. You can find more information about our course offerings, as well as all sorts of other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org. Our next edition of Documents in Detail will take place on Wednesday, February 15th when we'll be talking about Abraham Lincoln's Peoria Address. That comes from our latest core documents volume on Lincoln. Joining us at that time will be that volume's editor, David Tucker of the Ashbrook Center, actually two editors, 
David Tucker of the Ashbrook Center and Joe Fornieri of Rochester Institute of Technology. They will be joined by Jason Jividen of St. Vincent College. Thank you all for being with us here tonight. We'll look forward to seeing you again next month. Thanks again for listening to Teaching American History's webinar on Carl Schurz's speech against American imperialism. For more information on our webinars, core document volumes, in-person educator professional development programs, graduate program, and free document library, please visit us at tah.org.